Hey, my friends, this is progressive industrial rock artist Lane's Lair. And if you want to leverage your message to gain deeper influence and build a lasting legacy, you should be listening to Stories That Sell with my good friend Scott Ramage. You have the knowledge, the experience, and the talent needed to succeed. But in the day and age we live in, skill is not enough. Your story is the most powerful tool in your arsenal. This show will help you tap into that resource and learn how to leverage your message to gain deeper influence and build a lasting legacy. Tune in each week as thought leaders, entrepreneurs, and authors share how they built empires on the backs of their story. You're listening to Stories That Sell with your host, Scott Ramage. In this episode, I chat with the artist Lanes Laird, and we talk about his journey as a musician and how he grew up and learned his craft in the LA scene, how he really did live the musician's lifestyle. And we're going to really dive into the journey that he took and how he's built it into a business and a living and the lessons he's learned along the way. Hey, before we get started, imagine having a team of virtual assistants helping you out with everything from scheduling appointments, nurturing leads, processing payments, sending out marketing emails, creating content, managing your social media accounts, and so much more. The Ace for Gyms is here to make sure your business runs as smoothly as possible so that you can focus on what matters most, serving your clients. We offer a wide range of services that will completely run your business and give you the one thing everyone is limited on, more time. Check out our website at www.vasforgyms.com. That's V-A-S-F-O-R-Gyms.com and book an appointment to find out more. Lane's Lair, welcome to the show and thanks for coming on, man. Oh yeah, thank you for having me. It'd be a blast. <laughs> yes, it is. And so I'm, I'm I'm excited to get going on this because you're a musician and, you know, I'm so used to talking to um, like typical business owners. And I, I love like the idea of kind of diving into what it takes to be a successful musician and how that looks and what's formed you. So hmm. let's just dive in, man. Why don't you tell me a little bit about your upbringing and what took you into the direction of music? Okay. Um, yeah, God, you know, um, I remember as a kid, it was in a beat up old acoustic guitar that was in a, a you know, hallway closet and, uh, you know, strings were missing, had a crack in it. And, but I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. So I found out that it was my dad's guitar. He never played. So it was my dad's guitar. His dad gave it to him. So I think the guitar is something like late 30s. Wow. K, you know, since old one of those F hold acoustic, you know, action super hard to play, you know, but I but I, I picked it up and I just started, you know, teaching myself, you know, how to play. So, you know, it's funny, like back in the day, you know, all the all the guitar players, they would learn like, you know, deep purple smoke on the water, right? right, the, the right. One riff, you know, but but not me, like the first thing I taught myself was day tripper by the Beatles that turn in your riff, you know, and yeah, I was just intrigued. So I asked my dad, you know, can we take this to the shop and get it fixed up? So we did. And uh, just from there, uh, that led to 
taking formal lessons at the uh, Southern California Conservatory of Music. And so uh, my background is really traditional and contemporary jazz. Mm. But as a kid, it's like, you know, I'm what, 13, 14 years old. It's like, oh, man, I'm going to be a rocker. No, I don't right. want to do this. <laughs> you know, right? And it's funny because they did have another guy who just talked or uh, taught rock guitar. So I switched over one one quarter to take his class. And I realized, man, I'm not really learning much of anything. So there was really something to the whole jazz aspect, you know, learning these crazy chords and scales. And, you know, I sucked at improvising. So that that's the one thing that, you know, as a jazz artist. Yeah, that's, a, that's <laughs> so, it's not a good combination. Not a good combo, you know, but that's okay. You know, that's okay. But, but like the chords and the structure and the theory and all that stuff behind it is something that, you know, that I took with me, you know, all through my rock and roll career, because then you just not playing your straight ahead chords all the time. You get to alter things and change things and change your harmonies and the way that you build, you know, not only with, with chords, but just with vocals and harmonies, you know, you have these different ideas of creating sound. So it was actually a great thing. So I'm, I'm glad I, I went that route. But, you know, just like a lot of us young kids were like, you know, screw that, man. I want to be a rock star. That's mm -hmm. what I want to be. In high school, I was in bands and we actually, um, we actually started playing, uh, since I grew up in LA, you know, we started playing the whole Sunset Strip thing. So wow. you know, we're still in high school and we're playing these clubs that are supposed to be 21 and over. And, you know, we're really not supposed to be there playing. <laughs> But that's okay. And like the lead singer who was the youngest guy in the band, I think it was 16. You know, he's like trying to schmooze the bartender. Oh, yeah, I'm right. 21. And it's like, right. bullshit. No, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, but that was fun. You know, it was a fun experience. And, you know, even at that time, you know, you hear about, you know, the pay to play thing. And um, when I was doing it, it wasn't as bad as what it had become. And basically what that is, is let's say you wanted to play, you know, at the Roxy or you wanted to play at, you know, the Troubadour or, or whatever you want to put on this show. They say, OK, well, great, man, you need to sell 200 tickets hmm. and whatever you don't sell, you got to eat the cost. So basically you're buying 200 tickets and, you know, you just hope you can fill the place. You're paying to play. So that's your pay to play. And that was the system that a lot of the, the clubs were doing. Uh, and I, I mean, I haven't played out there in a long time, so I don't know if that's still the deal now, but it just was kind of a crappy way to, you know, get bands, especially who were trying to start out and build a following, you know, they're like, you know, gouging them for money, you know, and they're also, it's like, oh, wait a minute, my, my people are coming in, you're charging a two drink minimum, you're charging, uh, you know, a, a cover charge just to get into the place and you're not cutting that amount to the band. You know, that, you know, that's bullshit, you know, <laughs> that's not cool. So sounds difficult. That. I mean, that sounds, I, I want to connect that to like how business runs and how you've kind of built this, you know, how you've built out your, your musical career, but I want to rewind. You yeah. find this guitar in a, in a closet. And <laughs> I mean, were you just naturally pretty good at, at picking some tunes and, and kind of figuring it out on your own? Did you use other resources? I mean, you went to this I think you said a consortium later. Like, what was that journey like? Was it long? Did, um, it, did it take you a year to convince your parents to do something about <laughs> it? Yeah, I mean, luckily, my my parents were pretty supportive. My dad especially was mm -hmm. really supportive. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, you know, fortunately, I mean, I don't have perfect pitch where like, you, you know, someone could sing a, a tone and go, oh yeah, that's a, that's a B flat, you know, right. not that good, not that good, but, but I do play by ear so I can hear something, you know, on a radio or a record or whatever, and then figure it out and then be able to play it. So uh, I had that, but, you know, going to school formally, you know, did help, of obviously course. learning things that uh, I could never figure out on my own. But uh, yeah, so so the process was, you know, like learning songs, especially when, when you when you begin like writing songs, it was a lot of ear doing it by ear. My my both my boys are involved in music and I am not musically inclined. I tried <laughs> in, in elementary, I tried in middle school and I tried in high school. I picked up a, a guitar and I was telling you before we started, I'd listen to Joe Satriani. I would go take yeah. lessons. My friends could just. I, I was friends with a whole group of guys that were in a band and multiple bands actually. And they, a few of them are still professional musicians. And um, it was like this really cool ethereal world. And I was trying to tap in just zero skill, right? Like I'm just like, <laughs> um, but I was always fascinated and I'm just amazed that my boys are here and they're talking. My, my oldest took uh, an AP class in high school music theory and he's in leadership in the marching band in Texas, which is a big deal. Right. And yeah, he yeah. loves jazz and, it's just this world so far out of my understanding. And I'm just amazed at the mind, how the mind can pick that up. So you your parents weren't musical. Um, my dad wasn't, no. My, I mean, my mom played a little bit of piano, not much. And I think she did some singing when she was a kid, but you know, there wasn't really anybody who was like, you know, like the hardcore musician. Well, let's talk about that journey. I mean, here you are in high school, you're paying to play. You're not the first, I interviewed a, a coach the other day who's at, who was who actually a musician, professional musician as well. And he's like, oh yeah, we were playing in bars and no one knew we were under 21. It seems to be a really <laughs> common theme. Yeah. Um, so this pay to play thing, do you feel like that maybe taught you a bit about music or I mean about business and kind of how to, how to operate and what lessons did you learn from that? Yeah, I mean, even back then, you know, it's it's the thing about it is back then, you know, you have a bunch of kids who have bands, you know, and they want to get out there and they want to play. And, you know, we don't know any better. So it's a huge lesson, you know, and the club owners know this. So there's like, you know, these guys are just itching to play. I want to play in Hollywood. I want to play here. I want to play there, you know, and it's it's, you know, here's these kids with the rock and roll dream and they're coming from that angle, you know with no business sense. And right. the business guys are like totally taking advantage of it. Oh, you want to play at the Troubadour? Yeah, man, sure. You know, you just got to sell X amount, you know? And, you know, and, and all the bands are like, oh yeah, no, sure we can do that. And then they end up selling 20 tickets, right? And then they're- they're Eating you know, the cost. <laughs> totally eating the cost, you know? So there's definitely a huge learning curve, a fast, learning curve that uh, hopefully a lot of these bands and musicians learn quickly. Later on, um, when I was in some other bands, we actually made it a point to say, we're not doing any free gigs anymore, period. You know, and taking that step of like, if you're not going to pay us, we're not going to play. You know, it could be scary because because it's like, all right, well, then are we even going to get any work, you know, by not doing these, you know, freebie gigs or or maybe they, they, they feed you, but you know, that doesn't, you know, pay the bills, but it ended up that, uh, you know, when you decide on a path and for us, that was a business path, 
of you know, no more free gigs. And if we do a free gig, it has to be very high profile. You know, there has to be some benefit to the band or else we're not going to do it. You know, and we ended up actually still getting work and still playing. You know, we did bar gigs. We did all that stuff, too. And those are a grind as well. I'm sure some of your musician friends you know, can tell you that, you know, oh, yeah. when you're getting paid, you know, some of these gigs that you pay, you know, four hours or you play four or five hours at a bar, then, you know, each band member gets 50 bucks. That's you know, not a good hourly down. rate. Yeah, That's not a good hourly rate, you know. So, you know, but, you know, it's a start and you just kind of build from there. Uh, you point out a really good business concept. No free gigs. Like a lot of businesses, I was just interviewing another business owner and she's like, when I first started, I was, I was discounting every, all my clients. I was giving them great deals. I yeah. was, oh, you're a teacher. Oh, you get this for free or you can have my intro class for free or you yeah. can do this. And the lesson is, it's like when you kind of understand your value and you hold tight to that is when you really start to grow. So yeah. did you see a total change in your trajectory when you kind of decided this no free gigs thing? Uh, yeah, you know, definitely. And this was actually um, a few years later down the line. Of you course. Know, so it, it took it took time of being in the rock star mindset, you know, and the dream and trying to live this dream to finally getting to a point of actually learning that, you know, it, it's going to take take more than, you know, the dream. It's going to take some some smart business sense. Yeah. You know, um, so like the first band that uh, really did anything that, that I actually wrote a lot of music for. This is an interesting story is uh, I was in a band called Nirvana. Okay. Some people may have heard, heard this name before. Maybe. I, I don't know. <laughs> Favorite band in the nineties, whatever. <laughs> so <clears throat> we were actually in LA, we were the original Nirvana. That was our band. Um, well before the Seattle band, was even established. Right. Uh, of course, at that time, they're in Seattle. We were in uh, L.A. We didn't know e about each other. You know, we had no idea. Right. Um, and that was t around towards the end of the time uh, when I was ending my tenure with that band. Like, mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to move on and just do my own thing. So by the time that actually came to a head, because it did, I, I had left the band. But what had happened was the Seattle band found out about the LA band and vice versa. But the thing is, is that the band, the LA band, we own the international trademark to the name. We owned Nirvana. And uh, one of the brothers uh, uh, was a lawyer. So when a local radio station in Los Angeles started to play some music from this new band from Seattle, <laughs> uh, the attorney sent cease and desist letters to all the radio stations saying they're in violation of uh, trademark law and they'll be sued. <laughs> oh, wow. And so, so Geffen wasn't too happy yeah. about that. <laughs> so they, they sued us, the Nirvana band for 50 million or two, no, $2 million, like a countersuit for $2 million, you know, and so I went to court. Obviously, Geffen has great lawyers. Yeah. And uh, what ended up was that first the uh, the the uh, the judge threw out Geffen's uh, case. You can't you can't sue them. They own the name. Mm. Period. So actually, what happened is that we ended up selling the trademark to Geffen, and then Geffen had to pay us fifty grand for uh, trying to sue us. <laughs> 
Well, there you go. There's your connection with the other Nirvana. Yeah, that's yeah. so. But at, you know, at, at that time, I, I wasn't in the band, so I wasn't in the band at that time. But and the thing is, is like if I was, like I would have been, and they, you know, and I wish they did this, but they they didn't gig. I would have been gigging so much just to piss them off before <laughs> selling the name. You know, right? I just would have been gigging just to confuse people, to piss them off. I would have been sending them flyers directly to their managers and to Geffen Records. Hey guys, come out and see the real Nirvana. Come out to see, you know, just to piss them off. And then I would have sold them for like way more than that. Yeah. And probably would have got it. So what kind of music did you play? You know, Nirvana's got this new edgy Seattle right. rock thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, we we weren't grunge. The band, what the band was like, you know, you're you're uh, straight ahead, you know, rock and roll type band. Yeah. You know, you're I don't even know how to describe it, really. You know, like you know, back then maybe like a ZZ Top type band, mm -hmm. but not southern rock, but you know, or yeah. like Black Crows or that you know that kind of style. But but that wasn't how I wrote the songs that I wrote and that I had in the band. My style was more you know, moody rock. So I was writing more of the Pink Floyd type mm -hmm. moody stuff. So it kind of at least gave the band more depth between their straight ahead rock and roll and then this like moody whatever stuff that I was doing. But, uh, you know, but then, you know, at some point I just, I wasn't really happy with how my music was being interpreted. Mm. And I just had my own ideas of how I wanted to do it. I wanted to go a more of a progressive edge to it. And, and this band wasn't going to do it. So, I remember submitting a song that was like really just really off the wall, you know, and they and you know, so I played them this demo. I spent all day making this demo and uh, I played it for them. They just looked at me and they kind of laughed, you know, and they're like, dude, man, no, that, that I mean, I could get high to that, but no, we're not going to do this. song." <laughs> you know, is this a I mean, it's 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 kind of what you see in in the Hollywood movies and things is a kind of a, a, a musician's journey. Like they yeah. write something, it's not recognized by the other band members. <laughs> they break off. I mean, you just literally kind of li have lived that journey. It must, there, I mean, obviously there's some reality to it. Yeah. And, you know, again, and it's true, just like, you know, just like in marriage, you know, band is a marriage. So when I announced that I was leaving, you know, I, I did two more shows with them uh, at a club. I don't even know if it's still there. I mean, I get this is years and years ago. But there was a club called the Country Club out in Reseda, California. And uh, it was in like 800, almost 1,000 seat venue. So we did the last two shows were there and had great. It was a great, great time. You know, it was actually a great send off, you know, and then I started to do my own thing. And then, you know, in a typical, you know, stupid band, you know, ego, whatever fashion, so I'm doing my thing. And then I hear through the grapevine, like they wrote a song about me that was like dissing me and that pissed me off. So I wrote a song about them called Life After Nirvana that, that just dissed them, you know, and then they came to one of my gigs. I was playing out in L.A. and I played that song Oh no! And they all got up and they all walked out and then we didn't talk for at least five years. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just like just petty stupidity, really. But, you know, again, it happens all the time. It happens with, you know, whether you're younger or older. I mean, you know, I mean, if you look at bands, you know, like the Beatles, right? You know, when they, that happened, you know, there was a lot of animosity between oh, right. that. So, I mean, you know, it happens, but it really is. It's like a marriage. It's breaking up a business.
Yeah. And it's not pretty. <laughs> a lot oh, of times I it's just not pretty, you know? So you take this step away from Nirvana and you're doing your own thing. How does your whole business mind, your, your, your marketing, your, how do you getting gigs? Does that change now? Does that whole methodology change? Was there a lot on the line for you? I was, I was, I took, you know, when I left the band, I took my songs with me. So I was doing my stuff because I, I didn't, uh, at that time, I, you know, I wasn't co-writing with anybody. So it was, it was, you know, my stuff. So I said, when I'm leaving, my stuff's coming, going with me. So I did my own thing and I, you know, did more into a, a style than I wanted to do it. And I was still playing the clubs out in LA, but then I just kind of got, um, kind of got sick of it. You know, uh, I had band members that just weren't working out and it just became a, a chore. So I actually stepped away from the business hmm. for a few years. I actually stepped away. And then I just, when I decided to come back, I made a complete change. I as I started to uh, I was like, all right, I'm going to be a country artist. So I completely changed and uh, I, I decided to be like a country blues guy. And um, it was kind of a ballsy move, but I actually <laughs> I actually called A&R guys in Nashville with all the major labels and I made appointments with them. I had a demo, I made a demo, and I flew to Nashville with my demo. And I had meetings with all, with you know, Arista, with Sony, with Warner, you know, all of them, and sat down and talked to them, you know, and it was almost kind of a 50-50, 50-50 were like, you know, I've heard a lot of uh, country artists, but you're really scraping bottom of the barrel. <laughs> So you know, you well, that's got to be a fun lesson to learn, right? Yeah. How to deal with that. Yeah, so I was like, okay. And then there were other guys who were like, hey, you know, this it's not bad, but you know, you know, you should uh, maybe work on this and that. So I was like, okay, great. You know, it's a learning experience. You know, I'm new and fresh to this. No big deal. So I took it all with a grain of salt. And then, but then from there, I actually got involved with a band, an Americana um, folk rock type band called the Horse Soldiers. And uh, I actually worked in that band for about 10 years. And we were, you know, like we tour the Southwest. You know, we, 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 we would drive out to Texas to do a gig and then drive back to LA to do another gig and then drive out to Arizona to, <laughs> to do wow. gigs. Yeah. So, uh, and that was fun. And that was actually a good experience um, for me as a guitarist, as a player, because um, they, they started off as like, I guess they had like a big band, but then it, it, it like whittled down to like a, a three piece. And they had two acoustic or three acoustic guitars, but one guy was a 12 string player. Well, the 12 string player left and, and I got involved in the band. So I started to play 12 string acoustic and, and that really wasn't, you know, my forte, but it was like, you know, cool. I'll, I'll, I'll buy a cheap acoustic 12 string and, and just learn how to play. So I have to say that being in that band and playing in that band for so long, because my approach to the guitar was, you know, if you could do it on the six string, you could do it on the 12. I don't see why you, could, you, you can't do it, you know? So there's, so you're pressing two strings down at one time instead of one, big deal. All right, so you can't really bend like you can on a six string, right? Oh, I'll figure out a way. I'll figure out a way to try to, you know? And so that's how I approach playing the guitar. So, the 12 string now, if I play acoustic guitar, my go-to is a 12. Hmm. 
I feel more comfortable playing on a 12 string than I do a six string acoustic, acoustically at least. Wow. Which is kind of funny, you know, so yeah. like, like that guitar that's sitting in the back there that that's been my main guitar for for years and uh, love that guitar. It's it's uh, for, and for a 12 string, you know, like like them staying in tune and intonation and all that is always a big deal because it's a lot of stress on the neck from all those strings. That thing. And I think that guitar is like from 1991. Mm. I mean, it's. It's been through yeah. the paces. Been through the paces, and yet it still is like you know a workhorse. So, mm. so that that's my main acoustic that I that I play. Uh, but that was a great experience because it really taught me to really shore up my my skills as a guitar player. You know, on an instrument that uh, I wasn't really playing a lot before yeah. then. So, so yeah, so that that was a good thing. So you you, you do this you do this stint kind of in the country realm yeah. country, blues i think said country kind of blues type of stuff yeah. um how long did you do that for i mean you went to uh, nashville and kind of heard the yeah well i i played with the horse soldiers uh for about 10 years oh wow um and then wait, i think I, yeah here we go this was the horse soldiers <laughs> okay <laughs> yes if you're if you're listening to this you held the cd up and it's oh, it's sorry, country yeah. no it's awesome um that's that gives me a very good vision yes <laughs> yeah cowboy hats and everything you know yeah yeah um but uh, yeah so that was around 10 years and here we go again another marriage number two going for a divorce because mm -hmm. the leader of the band uh did not take it well oh wow <laughs> at all you know, and there were other issues. And this is funny because this is, again, going back to some of those stories that you hear, uh, you know, like Hollywood stories, right? So uh, we had a girl in the band who was harmony singer and she was my friend and we off and on dated for like eight years. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, you know, she gave me the ultimatum question. She's like, okay um look i just need to know like are we ever gonna be anything or not and you know me having my my list of the perfect woman right i'm sorry but you know it wasn't everything on my list so i i, I go look you know i love you you know you're my best friend but we're just only going to be friends and she said okay I, that's just what i need to know so there you go so I started dating this other girl, beautiful girl. We we were watching, I don't know if you ever saw that movie, What Dreams May Come with Robin Williams mm -hmm. and uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. It's like pretty depressing movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, but good story, right? About, you know, a guy is, you know, his wife uh, uh, dies by suicide and then he goes to hell to bring her back to heaven because you know, he had already died and all this. It's just crazy movie. So he, you know, it's like, here's this guy, he's going to hell to bring his wife back. So I'm sitting with my girlfriend, right? It's about a month after that big blow up. And I look at her and I, and I look at the screen, and I look at her and I look at the screen. And I think I would so do that for that other girl. Oh. <laughs> and so, uh, and then a couple of days later, I break up with her, this new girl. I break up with her and I tell her, I said, I'm going to, I have to try to get back together with the other girl. I, I'm sorry, but that's where my heart is at. Mm. So I do. So I go back and I pull all the stops out of, you know, anything and everything that you could possibly do to 
to get her to love you again. And there was no way, no way. And I was crushed. And, and, and we were still doing the horse soldiers. And it's like, I, I can't do it. I can't do it. I said, I got to quit the band. I just, I just can't do it. And so what really pissed me off was that the leader of the band, like he knew about this other relationship she was having with this bass player, because we were all in the same musician circle. So we all knew everybody. He wasn't in, in you know, a band that we were in, but just in another band, but they were all friends. And I didn't know about it. And he told her, he goes, he's like, you know, screw him, man. Go date the other guy if he's not going to be with you. And I was like, I'm like, you know, you didn't even tell me. You didn't even let me know. I've had I known, I would have, you know, fought for her and whatever. Right. So that was also part of the reason of, of quitting the band. total Hollywood story. I mean, oh my god, it was it was so ridiculous. So then, <laughs> so we're on the phone, and then he just like laid into me and was yelling. He was like, I can't believe you would do to me. I was like a brother to you, and I'm like, yeah, but would a brother not tell them that the girl that you was involved with? It was just it was so oh, just off the charts and then again we didn't talk to each other for i don't know how many years so you have this and same with same with the girl we didn't talk to each other 10 year stint 10 year stint you know bad divorce <laughs> yeah i mean you're, you're you're traveling with these people you're working long hours with them you're rehearsing with them you're setting up probably doing your own setup takedown whatever um yeah. together yeah it's pretty serious stuff it's crazy yeah crazy so a few years after that uh the girl she she sent me an email and uh, which i was shocked to get and uh i actually responded to her and she said yeah you know she goes uh you know she was seeing a therapist and stuff and, and they were talking about dealing with you know old wounds or things from the past or things to fix you know and she said so i wanted to reach out and i'm like yeah you know what it's stupid for us to not be friends we, we were best friends you know yeah. and so we patched that up and then um i actually somebody had reached out to me who we did a gig for their college and it was one of the professors there and he was retiring and he wanted the horse soldiers to play at his retirement and i was like well i'm not sure i'm gonna be able to get this band for you because we haven't played you know mm -hmm. so i thought well and they were paying good money so i'm like hmm okay let me reach out to the uh uh, leader of that band, even though I haven't talked to him, and considering how it ended, it wasn't very pretty. So I reached out and I said, "Hey, look, you know, got in, this guy got in touch with me. Wants us, wants the horse soldiers to play. I know the band isn't doing anything. the tr the The caveat is, I'm playing guitar, so I'm doing the gig with the band. But it is a paying gig. It pays, you know, X amount of dollars. It's a one off gig. I'll just do this one time, and then we can." separate part or ways you know do you want to do the gig like 20 minutes later this is like facebook messenger 20 right. minutes later he writes back as if nothing ever happened like and just he, let's do it he never from that point he has never brought up anything that had happened on that day when things just went to hell pretty fun it's just yeah did you guys just click when you, did you got you did the gig we uh, we had a couple rehearsals and stuff, but yeah, 
pretty wow. much. Yeah, we clicked, we did the gig, and then we did, we did some, uh, a couple others, but I didn't stay in the band, but, you know, I left the band, and it was okay. Mm -hmm. You know, like he was cool with it. And then he actually got involved playing in a band that he used to be in back in the, oh God, I don't know, 80s, early, like late 70s, mid 80s, because uh, he's older than me. He was in a band called The Furies, which they almost got signed. They were supposed to go on tour with The Pretenders back oh, in wow. the day. Yeah. But uh, I don't know what happened. Things fell apart and it didn't happen. So they were having this reunion thing and they needed a bass player. So I joined the Furies in their little reunion band to play with them. And we did this big gig, you know, with LA Weekly sponsoring, you know, in downtown LA and did this whole thing, and it was, which was fun. And I did a couple more gigs with them. And then he asked me to stay in the band. And I was like, no. <laughs> so I didn't. But again, so you can part ways on good terms. Okay. Right. I want this all to be. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think, you know, that you, you talk about this journey and there's so much emotion and time. I, it's just, it's got to be totally common just because you do spend so much and somebody wants to leave. It's kind of like ripping a part of what's been melded together for so long. So when you kind of were working through all of this, at what point did you say, okay, I'm going to move now? Are you moving different genres now, now that you're done with this? Yeah. Band? Yeah, so like the Horse Soldiers, you know, was that genre of Americana folk rock. Right. The Furies was like, uh, like power pop, I guess. Yep. Uh, you know, um, yeah. I mean, at that time, it was like, like the Knack was just becoming a band. You know, my Sharona and all that stuff. Yeah. And the Furies was like that, but a little harder edged. Okay. That. You know, like the guitar player played with the Dickies, you know, okay, yep. and so there was that kind of like post-punk aspect of it. That was, that was more of the Furious thing. That still wasn't like what I was doing as a musician. And I really did want to focus back on what, what my thing was, you know. So I decided to just be, instead of trying to be in a band or just have a band, it's like, you know, screw it. I'm just going to be a solo artist. I'm going to mm -hmm. be Lane's Lair, the artist. And I always wanted to record the music that I did even back in the Nirvana days, you know, years and years and years ago, I had these songs and I've never recorded them the way that I wanted to in a professional manner. I had two album ideas that I wanted to do. One was that album, which I call Resurrection of Black. And then I had another album called 1111. And that was the album that I was gonna do first because it was more, uh, I felt commercial, it's rock, but it's more acoustic rock, like singer songwriter kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, well, that, that's cool. That's probably a good thing to do because it's more commercial and acceptable. So I started working on that album first, but you know, it's just, it's just funny. And again, it's this thing, maybe I'm sure a lot of artists go through this is that for some reason, the chips were falling in the resurrection of black basket. Mm. Things were just moving towards that direction. So I ended up just changing gears. So, you know, I'm going to make Resurrection of Blacks, Black the first, you know, the, de the debut album is going to be this album. And I'm just going to do the rock and stuff that I did before, you know, and my approach to that was like, you know what, I don't care. I'm not, I'm not going to follow rules or guidelines or, you know, you got to write this way or do that or whatever. I'm going to do it on my own terms because number one is who is this for? It's for me. It's to satisfy, you know, myself 
I want to be proud of what I create. And if other people like it, that's icing on the cake. Right. And that is when you learn to be a true businessman. Mm. Because when you start doing it for the love of doing it and for the passion of doing it, and this is why you get down to your why. What is the why? Why do you do this? I do this because I love the music that I play. It means something to me. I'm passionate about it. And if it touches other people, great. And I hope it does. You know, we all hope it does. You know, that's the whole rock star side of it. You know, great. But you got to do it for the right reasons. If you're doing it because you want to make you want to be a famous, you know, for the fame and fortune and the, you know, the wild parties and the money and all this other crap, it is crap because that's icing on the cake. Because you know what? The people who do make it are the ones who put in the work. The hours and hours and hours of of honing their craft, of writing songs, you know, you think about, you know, these bands who, if you really talk to bands who have producers, they put them through the ringer. Yeah. You know, I remember watching when Linkin Park was making Meteora, Meteora their second album. And, uh, you know, I remember Mike Shinoda saying something. Yeah, he had the producer that they had at the time. He had us rework one of our songs 90 times. Oh, my gosh. Before he will let us, you know, before he felt that it was album acceptable. And that's what you have to do. You have to put in the work, you know. And that's what's really important. So when I did my first album, um, through this time, you know, I was I was fortunate enough to you know meet some really good session musicians. I was running sound at a at a uh, Southern Baptist church in in L.A. You know, and uh, <clears throat> one the the guy who was a music director was actually a really accomplished musician. You know, he's like one of the A players in town, hmm. and so he knew everybody. And then when he found out that I played, he took me from behind the soundboard to play on their worship team. And he would just bring in all the A players from town and that was the band. So like you got to play with like these great musicians, you know, wow. these guys were like, like way above your caliber, but like, what a great experience, you know? Yeah. So I never knew on that Sunday, never knew what we were gonna play, no idea. Here's your book, here are your charts. This is what we're gonna do. We run it once. And then we do the service, hmm. but these guys are so good. You know, you had to up your game. So it was a great experience. It was, you know, like really putting everything that you learn into practice. So it, it was, it was definitely a, a great experience. And he uh, is the one who actually got me in touch with the musicians that I had play on the resurrection of black album which is really, uh, really a cool thing. Cause I, I didn't know, I mean, I told him about the project that I was gonna do and, and I needed his help to help me write charts, you know, write the bass charts, write the uh, uh, drum charts, you know, cause that wasn't my forte. And this guy's just, he could write anything, you know. So we, he talked about it, he goes, hey, I know, you know, I got, I got the perfect guy for, you, for your album. His name's Greg Bissonette, and, you know, and his brother, Matt plays, you know, bass. He goes, you know, so I'm wanting, a perfect rhythm section, right? You got bass and drums, man. Solid right. foundation. Two brothers. Come on, right? right. And I, I wasn't really familiar who Greg Bissonette was. So then I find out, oh, Greg Bissonette. Yeah, he played with Joe Satriani. He was David Lee Roth's drummer when David Lee Roth left Van Halen. He's currently he's the drummer for Ringo Starr's All Star Band. He tours just, with just yeah. a little little experience going on there. Yeah. So I mean, this dude is like, <laughs> you know, 
And his brother, Matt, his brother, Matt, has been Elton John's bass player for years. Oh, wow. So if you went to see Elton John, you saw Matt play bass. Yeah. You know, it's like, so these guys are like, you know, off the freaking charts. Yeah, you had A players working. A players. And, and again, if you're talking about business, this is another thing is you get what you pay for. Mm -hmm. you know? And I did. I tried. I hired, you know, I tried doing it with friends. I tried doing it with other musicians that, that were good. But it just was not, it wasn't there, you know. And if you're gonna do something, man, maybe it maybe it costs some money up front, do it. Because in the long run, you are saving yourself so much time, so much money, and the quality of the product that you're putting out is way better than you could have ever done, you know. So here are these guys, and again, th this is this is why you want to get what you pay for. And this is this is it. So they come into the studio. They haven't heard one note of what I do. I have I have my, you know, like demo tracks with a click track. So I have guitar and a scratch vocal and a click. And that's it. But I have the charts. So I got bass charts and I have drum charts. Greg and Matt show up to the studio. So first thing we do, I hand them their charts. We play the demo. We're all sitting on the floor, you know, and they got their charts all laid out and and the song's playing and Greg, he's sitting on the floor and he's just marking his charts, mark, mark, mark all the way through. Matt's looking at the charts. He's marking it up and then Greg will say, OK, um, yeah, just just play one more time. I just want to you know follow along, just make sure my charts are cool. So we listen to it one more time. He's like, OK, it's, we're ready. So they go and they sit in, you know. They go and that they're reading their charts and they're doing their thing and it's unfreaking believable you know? <laughs> it's like you know holy shit these guys are amazing so they do their thing and it's great and then so then you know i'll go back and i'll walk and i'll say okay uh, and we actually go to the chart you know on this bar you know i want you to do this or on this measure play it this way or whatever and we make a little bit of adjustments run it again, they do their thing. It's still great, you know, it's still great. So then I say, all right, you guys know what I want. You know what I'm going for. You know the style and everything I want. We're gonna record one more time. And so my note for you is do your thing. Mm -hmm. Just do your thing. And they do. And I would say at least 85 to 90% of the album are those takes. Where they just got to do what they felt was the right do thing. your thing man that's awesome yeah. and yeah it was and and you know like i say you get what you pay for so when all was said and done and i went back and i laid down my guitar stuff and did all the vocals and all that stuff and you know put the album out it got actually really good reviews especially in europe mm. which is kind of funny only because it, it was embraced by the prog rock world and I don't look at it as a prog rock album, you know, it's like, it's like 80s rock with a progressive edge, you know, you just it's never not, know where it's going to land, right? I mean, when it, you when you put something out there, that's what's so funny, you know, and, and um, I know if you if you go to the lanesletter.com website, you know, if you go to like me, or where it, I forget wherever it says, you know, like, not media, not media, whatever it says for like press, if you go to press, there's, you know, I have some of the, uh, the reviews on there. And I was just like, really blown away you know, with the reviews. And one of them even said, 
you know, about how it sounded like we've been playing for years or something, you know, right. and it's like, well, you can take the years and maybe just shorten to hours. <laughs> you know? That's such and a we, good lesson, though. I mean, you using paying, you get what you pay for. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I wanted to work with great musicians, you know, it's like I have, you have a bar that you want to set, you know, for me as, as a musician, as for, you know, for music, but like you say, just with any business, you have a bar that you want to set, you know, you want to do be the best that you can possibly be in your business. And, you know, getting the right players for me was definitely the right business choice. And, you know, and, and, and it paid off, you know, it totally paid off. So yeah, it, it absolutely worked. Yeah, the album came out, everything went really, really well. I was very, very happy and very pleased with the results of that album. Yeah, and a lot of lessons. I mean, do you think you could have got that album out the way you wanted to get out with all the other experience, without all the other experiences you'd walked through? Probably not, you know, because again, like my attitude really did change in regards to the approach. It really was just about, I'm doing it because I love doing it. I'm doing it because, you know, I'm doing it for the right re reasons. Again, what is your why? Mm -hmm. Why do you do this? And, and, and that's why, you know, and so, and we did this, so Resurrection of Black, and I'm showing this. Yeah, that's <laughs> so, a cool, that's a cool cover. So, you know, and then on the inside, you know, we did this whole thing of artwork of mm -hmm. like, you know, post-apocalyptic, yeah, <laughs> whatever. And then on the inside, like, you know, so you can see, so that's, you know, it's Greg and Matt Bissonette. Giving them props. That's what giving them props, awesome. of course. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and, and like, and the, the thing is with like albums and CDs and that kind of thing, artwork is something that is a lost art. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, thank God, like vinyl is a thing because that's bringing artwork back into the picture because that was part of the, the love of, of buying a record or even Dude, buying I a CD. Hours looking at the, at the, you know, the CD insert or whatever it was growing up, it was vinyl around my grandparents and my parents sure. just looking at that. The, there was art, there was art in words. There was, cause you could read the lyrics, which was yeah. really cool. Um, yeah. You know, and, and look at that art. I agree. It's, it's, I hope it doesn't go away forever because, you know, yeah. the digital world has changed the landscape and the, the yeah. art has shifted a little bit. Now it's all visual video, but I just really appreciate the, art on albums yeah it's you know i like i said i hope it's something that 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 really sticks around because there was definitely a, a beauty to that and mm -hmm. reading the lyrics and and just you know, looking at the artwork you know i mean on that front cover you know we did that in in my backyard and i had the photographer come in and he goes you know i'm gonna have you like do this pose and we're gonna cover you in mud <laughs> and he did like he went to the uh, you know the gardener's store and <laughs> and brought like this <laughs> bag of dirt soaked me luckily it was in summertime so it was like blistering hot so that was okay soaked me in water and dumped all this dirt and just covered me oh my gosh <laughs> so it wasn't like photoshop like that was actually that's covered awesome. in mud <laughs> that's that's a whole nother art i mean that's a, it's a beautiful art it sounds like you got the right guy did 11 11 <laughs> ever come to fruition 1111 did, uh, and I did release that album. Uh, I know I'm going to show you. That's <laughs> fine. Let's get everybody get on the YouTube channel. Absolutely. So this is 1111. Very cool. Uh, Again, really do cool art. Much. Kept it simple on the artwork, yeah. just with uh, credits and you know lyrics. I don't even know what I had on the other side. Just more lyrics. <laughs> yeah. Um, so 
Yeah, the album did come out um, and I did, I mean, obviously style-wise was different from uh, Resurrection of Black. Resurrection of Black is more harder edged. Mm. Actually, people refer to the Resurrection of Black album as like the album of awareness. Okay, <laughs> right. <laughs> you right. know, cause I talk about, you know, I have songs about pleasures of war, which is like, a, you know, the irony of, of political war and, you know, the world around us, which talks about, you know, a kid dreaming about the best, you know, this great life, dreaming of this great life, and then reality hits, you know, can barely put food on the table and is struggling to live, you know. And then there's a song called Justifiable Condemnation, which was actually based on a poem that I'd wrote back in high school about cliques, about oh, high wow. school cliques. Serious you know, stuff. Yeah. Serious stuff. So, you know, and it's like, man, you know, the stuff that's on this album, even though these are songs that were written a long time ago, are so relevant to what's going on in the world today. You know, so it, you know, bullying and, and all that stuff, you know, was happening even back then. So I'm glad I, you know, I'm glad I had that song to, you know, to put on the album to talk about that stuff, you know. Fascinating, fascinating. It's it really is fascinating. I've never walked down a musical journey like that, like the the <laughs> artist's journey. And I love the the business things you've brought into play, like know your why, you know, and, and just all these really great things that are seen together. I, I just I'm fascinated by it. I want to shift gears just a little bit because I want to I want to I want the audience to hear some of the things that you've done to kind of keep your your saw sharp. Like um, how how do you best learn? Is it is it podcasts, uh, books, videos? What is your best learning or right like right now what do you really do to learn the most that you can okay um for me you know like books are great i like reading you know i like reading about stuff that maybe isn't even music related but it's mindset related mm -hmm. and that's important you know just with any business you gotta have the right mindset uh, and it's tough especially you know in the type of businesses that that you're in if you're being an artist or an entrepreneur tough businesses, right? All <laughs> you got yes. to keep sharp, you know? So mindset's a big thing. Uh, for me as a musician, you know, it's like, yeah, I got to practice. I got to keep up my chops. I got to, you know, I, I play bass a lot still. Um, I you know I got to practice that 12 string. I got to practice my strats sitting over there. I got to, you know, keep my chops up, you know, my songwriting chops. I got to, I got to keep up, you know? Uh, and I also listen. I listen to music. Mm. I get ideas from bands, you know, uh, I got my certain channels I program in Sirius. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was like, man, you know, like I'll listen to the hard edge stuff. I'll listen to Octane. I'll listen to, you know, the stuff that's real driving because the third album that I am working on right now, which is called ER, uh, I know that, that, uh, you know, for the podcast listeners, you can't see it, but you know, see that picture up there. Yeah. Yeah. That's the album cover. Oh, cool. Because cool. e ER means emotional release, hmm. and that's what the album's about. So, uh, for the podcast listeners, it's this artist who, it's it's digital manipulation. So it's this face of a hand pulling down on the jaw, and it's like liquefying. It's right. like this really weird kind of. You know, but that's it. It's emotional release, and that's what it, it matches the name. It definitely does. There's a real cohesion there or flow. Yeah. So the album is 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 definitely hard hitting. It's it's going to be a lot more harder than Resurrection of Black. Maybe not not like, you know, what you hear on Octane, you know, but you know, it'll still have a harder edge because it's like I want to get that out. I, you know, there are things 
there's you know not really rage there's this release emotional release that i want to get out but i don't want to keep it like this hardcore negative album you know i want right, to right. a positive uh sense to it to where it's not just all doom and gloom that's cool that's cool what what kind of timeline is are you looking at for i mean i know that's probably hard to tell tell yeah i mean we're probably looking like you know several months from now you know, oh wow it's in the early early wow. stages it's it's yeah it's 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 in the early stages now i just i saw this piece of art uh it's a guy named mark hall uh and, and they had this gallery uh for disabled artists and that some of his artwork was there was this piece and there was another piece and i was like oh man that's that's just too cool oh, so i bought them both <laughs> you know and i thought god that would make such a great album cover you know but yeah i'm working on i'm working on the music now you know and just kind of getting back to you know speaking of business getting back to 1111 now you know i mentioned that that was more of a commercial singer songwriter right. thing so well, it's a different journey mm -hmm. it's like a, a a a retrospective journey of someone's life you know and that's what the songs are about so i released that as the second album and it didn't do that great and I, and it's because the style i think was too much of a change so you have to be conscious of you know taking your audience somewhere down a path that maybe they're not prepared for yeah it's not that the album was bad you know there's there's some great songs on there again a couple of fantastic session musicians you know i had a drummer his name's rayford griffin dude is phenomenal great drummer funny thing about him is back in the day my sister's friend gave me this cassette tape one side was jean luponti jean luponti is a jazz fusion violinist okay right the other side was al Dimiola, guitar player fusion guitar player had no clue who these people were so i listened to jean luponti the first side i first i thought it was a synth i had no idea it was a violin because the things that he was playing on that was like mind-blowing mind-blowing you know look him up look, look up the album was jean luponti live hmm. and the, again the musicianship here's like these jazz fusion guys and they're just blowing me away because i'd never heard anything like that same with aldi miola i'd never heard anybody play guitar that blistering fast who picks every single note perfectly wow Un believable so maybe something that you guys can check out <laughs> cool very cool but rayford was in jean luponti's band who i saw when i was a sophomore in high school and i saw rayford he was on he was playing at the gig I had no idea and right. again my my friend the guy who wrote all those charts when i was doing the 1111 album he goes yeah i got a drummer that i think would be great for that and he said rayford griffin and so yeah, I'm like, oh yeah, Rayford, yeah, he'd be great, you know. And then inside, I'm like, yeah, right. You're oh acting, my god! <laughs> oh my god, which was really funny. And and I and I told him, you know, like because we he had a recording studio at his house, so we recorded at his house. And then he, we actually did our album release party and 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 a couple other gigs I did with Rayford. So I got to play with the guy. So talking about coming full circle, yeah. seeing him play as a kid, and then having him be in my band and play really cool uh, i mean yeah totally cool totally cool that's a that's a lesson in persistence and sticking with your your craft as well you know when when the journey isn't straight it will come full circle eventually it's and really you, exciting. you just never know you yeah. never know how that's going to be you know and i'm not sure if I, I will have rayford play on the third album 
not because he's not capable because he's more than capable it's just the style is just not his thing right right so i may have somebody who you know is more into the you know like what you hear on octane yeah yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. you gotta get the person the right genre the right yeah the yeah. right vibe yeah. all right so one last question yeah and uh if you could give go back in time and give yourself one piece of advice back when you're in your teens and you're you're getting started what would that be i would say number one is you gotta you gotta be confident in yourself yeah. not arrogant but confident because i wasn't you know as, as a kid i wasn't you know there wasn't a moment and i remember this very distinctly like one of the very first gigs i've ever played maybe second gig i ever played and there was another player guitar player and he said or, or like they're like who's going to sing and because I was so self-conscious and had no confidence, I said, no, you sing. And I didn't pursue it. And I should have back then, not that I was a great singer, you know, you know, I'm sure I sounded like crap, but that's okay, you know, and just starting out. But I should have had the confidence to just do it and do it and do it because you know what, you are going to get better. So I would tell myself, gotta have confidence and just do it because mm. you will, you will get better. And and just don't stop, don't give up. You know, it's awesome. Push yourself through the hard times because most of the musicians that I've played with, like back in Nirvana days and those guys, none of them play. Nobody plays anymore. They've all given up. You know, I'm like the only guy who's stuck with it. Wow. You know, so don't give up. Stick with it and have faith in yourself and believe in yourself and just work your craft. And whatever the hard things are to learn, you just gotta, you gotta just plow through it, you know? Yeah, that's excellent. I'd agree hundred <laughs> percent, totally in line with that belief uh, and that advice. Well, Lane's Lair, super awesome to chat with you. Uh, I have learned so much and it's been really interesting, really interesting. So thank you very much. Great. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Stories That Sell podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, be sure to leave a rating and review and subscribe to hear interviews with incredible guests each and every week.